Welcome to Famous Lost Words, a deep dive into the interview archives, and man, we got some gems for you today. Tom Jokic, my co-host and the creator of this show, is with me as always. Hey, Christopher. It really is going to be exciting. We've got some of the biggest names of all time on today's show alone. Like, mm-hmm. we've done... We've done huge names already. We've done John Lennon. We've done David Bowie. We've done Janet Jackson. We've done Taylor Swift. We've done. Uh, uh, We're going jo- bigger. Justin Bieber. We're, we're in bigger. one way. In one example, we are definitely going bigger, and that's in segment two. You're going to tell us about that in a second. Mm-hmm. First of all, around the time when I decided that this would be a great idea for a show, going back into the interview, interview archives, I had this interview in mind. Ah. Um, and it's because I heard it a few years ago. And it's a 1995 interview with Joni Mitchell. Right. And it is exceptional. And I'm a big Joni fan, so perhaps I am biased. But boy, how she talks here, what she says, the kind of the fierce pride that she takes in her work, the self-awareness in what she's doing in her in her own artistry. Sure, there might be a little bit of... I don't know. Arrogance is too strong of a word, but she is very confident in her legacy. And so I truly love this interview. And this is one of the interviews that inspired me to create this show. And then once you and I met up with each other, I just went, Christopher's the guy and we've got to do this show. And Joni's one of the reasons why we're doing it. So there you go. And segment two. Yes. Christopher, what have we got? There are giants in the music business. Mm -hmm. There are names that ring out through all time right? as influences, as powerful figures. But I think this is the top of the heap. Are we talking about Kiss again, please? (laughs) No, we're talking about the Starland Vocal Band. (laughs) (laughs) You're never going to let me live that down for admitting I love Afternoon Delight. That's all I'm going to say until we we get to the segment. All right. Oh, okay. So you're not even going to say who it is. No. Okay. Well, you're right, though. This person is perhaps the giant of all people, and we normally wouldn't go quite back this far on our show, but we are, and it is exceptional, and I can't wait to hear it again. And in segment four, our last segment today, we have John Fogarty from CCR, just as CCR is calling it a day. They don't quite hate each other yet, so he's actually- <laughs> but close. Re- but close, and they're, he's actually relatively nice to his bandmates, but you've got some great clips for me. Yeah. Um, I've, I, just recently, I just heard them yesterday, so I'm really excited about that as well. All right, Tom, hit me. Joni Mitchell. All right, so- as you may or may not have deduced from my opening, I'm a bit of a Joni Mitchell fan. And so when it's a, I. It's a club here, by the way. It's a full <laughs> okay. fledged club. Adam, are Excellent. you in? Yeah. Okay, yeah, it's three for three. That's right. This interview is from 1995. And uh, the woman who did the interview, her name is Nancy Krent. And I, I'm just so sorry to say that it was just a few weeks ago that Nancy passed away. Mm. And, uh, and I've been online kind of reminiscing about the fact that this was one of the highlights, one of the many highlights of Nancy's career. And I'm so pleased to be able to play it um, on the air. This is Joni. From 1995, I believe she's releasing kind of a retrospective of some of her work at this point. And here she is, Joni Mitchell, in conversation with Nancy Crand. Now, there's one thing. I was talking to a couple of people today, and I, I said to them, you know, she's, she's got such a, an incredible career. But there's one thing that sticks out in my mind, and that's the fact that you have never compromised either your music or yourself. You're one of the few artists who's never done that. You've always done exactly what you've wanted to do. I, I'm lucky that way. Um, I think if you, once you begin to compromise, 
and is seen as a compromising person, they kind of steamroller over you. And and basically, in the music business, when when I started, it was quite a different business than it is now. Now it's much more mercenary than it ever was. The, the business was young when I was in it, and it was fair for a while. I mean, relatively fair. The contracts were still kind of slave laborish, but we were all too ignorant to notice. We trusted our managers, and and uh, you know, it isn't until you finally read one of these things you realize how badly you've been screwed. You've been a sharecropper all the way along. <laughs> but um, but I managed to keep my music pure. I, I made thirteen albums without a producer. Even the even the first album, which David Crosby produced. Technically, he didn't do anything, and it, it, the idea was not to have a producer there in case they tried to make an apple into an orange. They would have they would have tried to make a folk rock artist out of me. They they didn't know who or what I was. I I just saw some of the early ads for me on reprise. A guy came by yesterday with them. The first one was Joni Mitchell is ninety percent virgin, and and the ad for the second one was Joni Mitchell finally comes across. <laughs> you believe this and and then the third one i think it was the third one was Joni mitchell is no janice joplin but so they pitted us in the ads against each other you know oh really strange stuff like that you know but that's i mean well yeah because that's the whole distortion of what you were trying to do actually i mean that's i mean you weren't anything alike well it just goes to show you you know like like how um how the woman is is viewed as a sex object and nothing else. So if the, your music is, you, you know, it was romantic, uh, it was not overtly sexual, uh, so they didn't really know what to do with it. It was my innocence, you know, like uh, I was experienced, I'd been around, I'd seen a lot of life by the time I was 25, but I had an aura of a, of a, of a 14-year-old and a kind of a fresh scrubbed one of that. I didn't wear any makeup for one thing and not wearing any makeup um, made people think you were religious. <laughs> it did. It was like, you know, they thought it was for religious reasons or something. Well, you're supposed to have all this black eyeliner that comes out to here type yeah, of thing. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, hourglass shoes and paint. I got myself painted one time at Elizabeth Arden Studios in New York City, and I had the hardest time. I mean, I, I, I you know, people, it, it was so different. It, it, it invited come on. Without the makeup, you could move around kind of without any harassment. As soon as you just put a little blue on your eye, it seemed to announce that you were available to be hit on. I never really noticed it since I didn't wear it, but but the night that I put it on, I, I took a cab ride down to Max's Kansas City, and and I walked into the bar, and the whole room turned towards me like with that desperate look that people do when they're drinking and watching the door for people coming in. Whoa, I turned on my heel, I got in a cab... And the cabbie that I drew all the way uptown again, he, he, he wanted to do nudes of me against eye bars, you know, eye bars representing the girder work of New York City. And he literally parked the car at, at the curb and followed me into the hotel, and I deked him into the bar. I went into the bar, and I ordered a bottle of wine and, and with this blue on my eyelids, like this Elizabeth Arden beauty face that I had painted on me. And, and two guys in tuxedos sat down. They were Midwestern um, steel executives, you know, and they were in town. 
we got to talking. I lied about my name. I told them that, that, that my name was Bobby Anderson and that I was a model. Then we got taught, and I, I never even thought how stupid that was to be sitting alone in, in, in the bar of the Pierre and, and saying that you were a model, you know. So they thought I was a hooker, but they were, they were, <laughs> they were both very, very courteous, and I danced with them, and, and we spent a lovely evening discussing all sorts of topics. And at one point, one of them went to the bathroom, and I was dancing with the other guy who had a bow tie on, really nice guy, and he, he was drunk at that point, and he took his bow tie off and said, you know, Bobby, I know I can't afford you. I guess they thought I was like a high-class caller, <laughs> but here, take this as a souvenir for a wonderful night. So I said, oh, that's when I realized what they thought was going on so i said go go find your friend and i sent him off to the men's room and i went over and paid my bill and theirs and slipped off like cinderella you know <laughs> but that was all on account of the paint i do believe you got a mind like a steel trap don't you <laughs> well i i stuff stores like film you know it's just kind of like a movie that you once saw you know but getting back to the the role of the songbird you know um and and pop beauty um we were used to we're used to the painted face you see these makeovers like before and after and you'll have a nice scrubbed face before and then they'll paint it all up after and and we're supposed to like the after better but i nearly always liked the before it seems like the after is is a face that's painted on and it's a style of the times the pale lipstick of one era, the red lipstick of another, the, the plucked eyebrows of an era, the over-the-lip line lips of another. You know, the, there, there are styles of faces and everyone is painted accordingly and that becomes the, the uh, sensual come-on of that particular period. And I opted um, through the freedom of hippiedom, California, girls at that time didn't wear any makeup they were always in the ocean and running around it made you more portable <clears throat> it's a very practical life very practical. <laughs> you know men were attracted to you without the paint so so there's Joni. that's so funny how being uh without makeup is being more portable and she's absolutely right you know she is so articulate yeah, i just stand in awe of her and it's 23 years ago and you know we were well deep into women's rights and the women's movement but still sometimes you think that people even need to hear that 23 years later that being without makeup is being way more portable and being way, way more natural so of course uh joni was kind of introduced to the world as like a folky but she was much more than that. And she had to develop her sound over a few albums. And so at this point, Joni is talking about finding the right musicians to play her music. David liked the music the way it was, and it was pretty intricate. And um, I don't think the players had been born yet that could play it. They had to be ambidextrous. They had to be um, classical pop, rock, jazz musicians to to play anything that intricate so the sections that were available say to james taylor and um carol king and people they couldn't they couldn't play the music they would step on the little grace notes and so on and and they knew it and advised me to to look for my musicians in the jazz camp Mm -hmm. so i found the la express intact and and that collaboration i think worked successfully but it took me that was my fifth project it took me four projects to find a band that could play my music without bruising it or destroying it, really. Isn't that interesting? What a choice of words, like bruising her music, right? So it took five albums for Joni to find the right group of people to play behind her. And her fifth album is called For the Roses. And that's the album after her classic album, Blue, which some people consider her best. And 
easily was her most nakedly emotional and confessional. It, and it is the, the, the peak of it, the confessional songwriter absolutely. era. Absolutely. For sure. They're, they're so direct. And the songwriting is, mag- is magnificent and perhaps unprecedented in the way she wrote those songs. And she says um, that she was n- near an emotional breakdown during the recording of that album. She mm. would sob kind of uncontrollably in the middle of recording this. So you can't hear the sobs, but you can hear this abject sadness, but also this longing and this romance. And there's also wit on the album as well. It is an exceptional album. Mm-hmm. And those albums changed the game for many songwriters, male and female. Now, my go-to of Joni's albums is Court and Spark, which right. I got into many years after its release. And I was, But I was only 12 when it came out. And I was still listening to songs like The Night Chicago Died by Paper Lace <laughs> on the radio. So I, wasn't, I was not ready for Joni. And Court and Spark turned out to be her most popular album. And it's got some great hits on it, like Help Me and Free Man in Paris. But the beauty and the moodiness and the musicianship on that album is so deep and profound. And and that jazz influence is just fantastic in there. You know what's kind of wild for me as we look back at these eras is to think about the biggest songs of an era contrasted with the ones that have the lasting impact. Yes. Now, an album like Blue, I mean, it was popular at the time, but it's, you know, what it's come to mean to people over the years is amazing. But you look at the songs that were popular when that record came out? Seasons in the Sun, (laughs) which we have talked about. That's right. You're Having My Baby. Yeah. Which we haven't talked about for good reason. And we won't. And The Streak by Ray Stevens. Yeah, Yeah, there's a lot of novelty, you know. Chuck Chuck Berry with My Dingling, for God's sake. You know, those were the songs that were getting played. Now, thankfully, every once in a while, Joni would punch through with Free Man in Paris or or Big Yellow Taxi. And uh, I think this, and Help Me. Raised on Robbery. Oh, God, what a great song. And... And, you know, uh, there's another song. Sorry. You Turn Me On, I'm a Radio. You Turn Me On, and um, from the album Blue, Carrie was from that. And, there, mm-hmm. you know, that got some radio airplay. So so it was good to see. There was still great music being made and being played on the radio. But, boy, the upper echelon of the charts at times was kind of embarrassing, you know? So, of course, Joni's upbringing informed a lot of her life and career. And in our last segment here, she talks about why she seemed wise beyond her years when she first started out in the business. Getting back to my entrance into show business, since, uh, since I never intended to enter into show business, even though I was creative, uh, I, I knew at 16 that, that, that there was a price to be paid. I didn't enter into it naive, and although I probably look more naive than most people Basically, I think I was fairly clear as a kid, and um, I'd had a lot of childhood illness. That makes you kind of a, a 50-year-old, 9-year-old, you know, if you face death a couple of times in your childhood, it, it, it changes your perspective. The kind of music that I did, once I discovered that you could set poems to music, made me a kind of a different animal, part of a, part of a school of different animals. We were, we were the first singer-songwriters, those people that were doing one person doing what three people had done before. Um, in that way, I was able to create my own roles. Um, Faye Dunaway said to me one time, you know, you know that, and this was at a time when actresses were, were complaining loudly that there were no good roles for women, that men were creating these dimensionless, decorative, fluffy things, um, that, that I was fortunate in being able to create my own roles. And I hadn't quite thought of it that way the only way i was thinking was since dylan had written positively fourth street that that 
the American pop song was now wide open, that it could be quite literate and, and it could embrace a, a real panorama of emotional um, directions. You could write now from an angry position, although generally an angry man is an angry man, but an angry woman is a bitch. <laughs> um, you know, you. So I created roles. I guess they. You know, that 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 uh, for myself that that I felt comfortable with. There was an interviewer the other day who said that raised on robbery marked um, the beginning of of my sexual awareness or something. And I thought, my God, you know, like I said, you, you know, you don't think that song is about is autobiographical, do you? It's a portrait of a hooker picking someone up. In the Empire Hotel, oh, he looked quite stunned, you know. Like I thought, well, you know, I said, you know, my music reveals my sensuality perhaps, but my sexuality is like my own business, you know. <laughs> I don't feel like a lacking as a woman. I, you know, I don't feel that I need to. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to uncover every bit of my life and put it into my song lyrics, and you can now know about it. I don't think so. Yeah, I mean, I did believe that I did use myself as a as a model for some of my subjects. You know, it was unusual to say I'm selfish and I'm sad. All of the roles that had been created up until that point for men and women were generally seductive roles. And uh, that human, although I thought that we had an opportunity here to create real roles, l- literature, you know, like um, a, a drama with a greater depth, and I was willing to sacrifice myself to those roles, I didn't really expect that they would confuse art with the artist as much as they do, but I don't know why I didn't expect that. That's been true all through history. Um, I'd write a line down on a page, and I'd think, that's a very human line and and and, uh, and has nice alliteration. You know, I looked at it much more objectively, and, and, and you know, I'd think, yeah, that's the truth, you know, that, you know, the premise of art is truth and beauty. The premise of pop is, is uh, posing. You know, so I'm a kind of a fine artist working in the pop arena, and I'm being adjudicated and judged by pop standards. So, so I'm ripe for misunderstanding, uh, and 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 lack of appreciation. I'm an odd duck, and she is an odd duck indeed. Boy, there's so much to unpack there. Her upbringing, her polio, her kind of clear vision of her artistry as a young person, the influence of Dylan on her music. Right. Now that, can I jump in? Because yes. that, that's interesting to me when you consider some of the things that she said about Dylan in subsequent years. Mm-hmm. Now I know people do kind of you know slag one another, but he, she, as she says, he opened a door. She says it was with Positively Fourth Street. That's right. For me, yeah. it was the single that preceded it, like a Rolling Stone. Absolutely. I remember hearing that yeah. and just thinking, you can write about that? Yeah. It was like everything changed yes. in the moment that I heard like a Rolling Stone. I guess for her, it was positively 4th Street. Right. And um, it's great to see her credit that. Because she has been pretty uncharitable towards uh, Dylan uh, in recent years with some of her comments. To say the least. But she also has given him credit where, where she believes it's due. And it's funny because she says the same thing about David Crosby. Like David was a huge... A, you know, a huge champion of her. Mm-hmm. But in this book that I'm holding, it's called Reckless Daughter by David Yaffe, and it's a portrait of Joni Mitchell, and he interviewed her um, right up until 2015, around the time, just before she had her brain aneurysm, so we haven't heard much from her since. But he talked to her to great detail about this, and she says things like about David Crosby, that in the studio, he was completely incompetent, right? And you're going... <laughs> 
Joni, he just helped you like so much with your career. But Joni makes the case, of course, that I only needed so much help, right? Like, well, like, that's true. And, and, you know, one of the things about Joni that tops the likes of Bob Dylan is her own musicianship, her own musicality. She's a player. And, and the way she would tune the guitar, like this, it, this comes up a lot in this book about how her open tunings, her very unusual tunings, and a lot of musicians didn't even know how to deal with that. And it was so intricate. It was so smart. And the grace notes and the subtleties and the nuance of her music confused a lot of the session musicians. That's why earlier in this, in this interview, she talked about having to go into the jazz camp, as she called it, right. to be able to manage her music. Oh, with LA Express. Yeah. yeah. Scott. Well, Crosby, in the interview I did with him, um, actually, it may have even been outside the interview because we were overlooking the Riverboat Cafe when I did the interview at the Four Seasons and he said oh yeah that's where I met Joni Mitchell and he said she taught me two important things one open tunings right and the second thing was write it down (laughs) (laughs) that's right I love that boy oh boy if you don't know much about Joni Mitchell there's so much more than the singles you've heard on the radio and of course she got a bit of a a renaissance when uh, Janet Jackson kind of kind of covered um, Big Yellow Taxi yeah and uh, uh, on the song "God Till It's Gone," and there, there's just so much depth there. And you know, you know, she was a strong voice for women, a strong voice for feminism at a time when that movement was just getting going in the early '70s. And um, and that brought, you know, she brought that to her career and her life and her music. How do you like the book? Oh, I love the book. I, am, I haven't read it yet. I am a, I'm a few hundred pages in. I'm a little more than halfway done. Great story. At one point, she's trying to find a manager. And there's a kind of a famous manager in the business who says, Joni, I love your music. I love your performance. I love everything about you. I would happily manage you. Um, so I would like 50% of your songwriting royalties, of your publishing. <laughs> yeah. And she said, you know what? That sounds great. I would like 50% of your management company. And he said, are you crazy? And she said, are you? I <laughs> love that story. Let's love see. It. Who would that be? David yeah. Ge- is it Geffen? No, it's not David Geffen. Now, mm. they have a lot to say about each other. Um, much of it is positive. I'm going to have to look up that guy's name. Anyway, so there you go. So uh, the biography is called uh, Reckless Daughter by David Yaffe. I'm holding it up to the mic so you can see it. And that's your homework for the next couple of weeks, uh, faithful listeners. Read it. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. <laughs> This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Okay, Christopher. Yes. Okay, <laughs> okay, Mr. Fancy. You've got, you're claiming you've got some big star uh, for us today to listen to. All right, I, and I, I will apologize if I've oversold this moment, but it, this is, to me, a fascinating clip. It is from, arguably, I'll always put that little clarifier in there. Sure. The most famous and influential singer in the history of rock and roll, ladies and gentlemen, drum roll, Elvis Presley. Okay. So this is yeah. deep in the interview okay. archives. Yeah. Now All this right? must go back about 60 years, which is a, like way farther than we've gone previously on the show. It sounds like it might have been created for maybe a fan club or something. Okay. Because there's no interviewer involved. Right. And and we can't say for sure. But to me, in 2 minutes and 12 seconds, it reveals a lot. He talks about you know his stage moves, where that came from. Uh, he talks about cars, a very important topic, and talks about falling in love, baby. Fall in love, fall thank in you. Love. Um, but despite the sort of aw shuck style of delivery, this is an artist very much in control of his message. He gives you 
little kind of windows of intimacy into his life, talking about when he was driving a truck, talking about his first car burning up, and, and talking about his temperate lifestyle. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I know. But it's the awareness of his audience that comes through. And I, I find him at times humorous, serious, but always charismatic. And there's this sensual quality to the mm-hmm. way that he addresses the listener and, and draws them in. Now, this is worthy of repeated listens. So, um, uh, conveniently, uh, you can hear it anytime on the iHeartRadio <laughs> app <laughs> and on iTunes. Okay? Ladies and gentlemen, the king. I guess the first thing people want to know is why I can't stand still when I'm singing. Some people tap their feet, some people snap their fingers, and some people just sway back and forth. I just sort of do them all together, I guess. Singing rhythm and blues really knocks it out. I watch my audience and listen to them, and, and, and I know that we're all getting something out of our system, and none of us knows what it is. The important thing is that we're getting rid of it, and nobody's getting hurt. I suppose you know I've, uh, I've got a lot of cars. People have written about it in the papers, and a lot of them asked, write and ask me why. Well, when I was driving a truck, every time a big, shiny car drove by, it started me sort of daydreaming. I always felt that someday, somehow, something would happen to change everything for me, and I'd daydream about how it would be. The first car I ever bought was the most beautiful car I've ever seen. It was second-hand, but I parked it outside of my hotel the day I got it and sat up all night just looking at it. And the next day, well, the thing caught fire and burned up on the road. And a lot of the mail I get, people ask questions about the kind of things I do and all that sort of stuff. Well, I don't smoke and I don't drink, and I love to go to movies. Maybe someday I'm going to have a home and a family of my own, and I'm not going to budge from it. I was an only child, but uh, maybe my kids won't be. I suppose this kind of talk raises another question. Am I in love? No. (laughs) I thought I'd been in love, but I guess I wasn't. It just passed over. I guess I haven't met the girl yet, but I will, and I hope I won't be too long, because I get lonesome sometimes. I get lonesome right in the middle of a crowd, because I've got a feeling that with her, whoever she may be, I won't be lonesome no matter where I am. Well, thanks for letting me talk to you and sort of get things off of my chest. I want to thank all my loyal fans who have watched my performances and then that way became friends of mine. I sure appreciate your listening to my RCA Victor records. And I'd like to thank all the disc jockeys for playing them. Bye-bye. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. During your introduction to that piece, Christopher, I actually thought you were overstating things a little bit. Yeah. I'm wrong. You understated it. That was exceptional. It's great to hear him. And yes, I do believe that's just after his breakout because he's talking about people ask me all the time why I wiggle around all the time, yeah, right? Yeah, and yeah. so that was really, I believe, an issue right when he broke, 56, 57, uh, before I was born, I just want to say, I'm not speaking from first-hand experience <laughs> on this. but No, um, I didn't see him on Ed Sullivan either. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it's excellent. And just, you know, his description is so believable, why he does it. You know, he just feels it. And talking about kind of celebrating his own music on stage. And you can tell that he loves the fans, but you can also tell that he's been asked all of those questions a ton of times. But he's still giving great answers, even though it's just one long answer. Well, I love when he says something about, um, and nobody gets hurt. 
you know? Yeah. <laughs> the well, idea. It's like, in other words, don't worry about it, folks. Like, he knows people are overreacting for to sure. the sexuality of his performance, and he's yeah. going, just chill, you know? That's right. And nobody gets hurt because people thought of him as dangerous and, and you know, almost like a criminal, right? Yeah. And with many of the stars that they brought down from that era, you know, Chuck Berry, and, and, and a lot of these people were um, shunted away including Elvis when he was sent to the army. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there, some of those artists really paid a price, and some would say that, you know, Elvis's music changed forever once once he left Sun Records, went to RCA, and then went into the army. Well, that's, that, a, that's, that's what John Lennon says, that Elvis died when he went to the army, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there's one bizarre little footnote. I don't know if you noticed, but he refers to being an only child. Right. Now, do you know the story that he had a stillborn brother? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jesse Guerin, yeah. Jesse Guerin, yeah. Mm-hmm. I know that kind of the ghost, uh, the specter of Jesse, um, you know, kind of stayed with him and his mom over the years. So it is, it is interesting that he, uh, that he put it that way. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic. I'm Christopher Ward. John Fogarty is a true American rock and roll original. He formed Creedence Clearwater Revival formerly the Gollywogs. Oh, dear. Can you believe that? Yeah, <laughs> ouch. Uh, with his brother, Tom Fogarty, and a couple of guys, Stu Cook and Doug Clifford. And he hit upon a sound that was sort of retro, but also incredibly fresh at the time with this sort of swampy Louisiana feel to it. Pretty interesting for a guy from Berkeley, California, right? <laughs> anyway, from 68 to 72, they were a hit machine, eventually selling over 26 million records in the U.S. alone. This interview goes back to kind of the last gasp of CCR, mm-hmm. the release of the album Mardi Gras, which was widely panned. Fogarty tells stories of their classic songs, including the writing of one of my favorites, Down on the Corner. Mm-hmm. As far as I remember, that's the first song I wrote in a hotel room. <laughs> Uh, we were doing the Andy Williams show, and Green River was the tune we were doing there. That's right. And we were, you know, we were there like Thursday and like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, hanging out, as they say. And we were on our way to what was to become Woodstock uh, Saturday, and then coming back, and then Sunday night playing Camden, New Jersey, and coming back. Monday to do a Dick Clark special thing. It was a heavy week of just traveling and playing and all that. And there I was feeling kind of, I don't know, pushed out of shape slightly because of, you know, we were the band, we were the rock and roll group that was going to be on the Andy Williams show. We were kind of stuck in a corner and told to be good, you know. And uh, so I just locked myself in my hotel room and started writing, you know, and I just... I had to fantasize. I had to get out of all that kind of. You know, it, it felt like us and other bands like us. We were being stuck on to boost somebody's ratings or something, you know, or to make somebody relevant. Yeah, I, I, it was a shame. Anyway, feeling that way, uh, I had to get out of it. I just had to do, you know, do something constructive, as they say. And I locked myself in my room and wrote down on the corner, you know, f- starting with a kind of an outline of. I think it was going to be like Winnie the Pooh, the beginning. You know, I just because that's all he's been always kind of a gentle cat. You know, uh, the bear, Pooh Bear. And the you know Winnie and Winnie and the Pooh Boys or something like that. You know, and you can see the progression. It just went into that sort of a thing, and suddenly it was 
you know, Willie and the Poor Boys, and that was just, that was right. That was the thing. Oh, well, that's interesting. So what he explains there is he's on the Andy Williams show, right? And Andy's known for the song, do you want to sing it or shall I? (laughs) (laughs) Moon (laughs) River. Oh, come on. Well. Wider than <laughs> Wait, but that's the thing. You know that stuff. You think, oh, I don't know that. But yeah. then all of a sudden you're going, I'm crossing yeah. you in style yeah. someday. And I, I hate to admit it, but I absolutely love that song well, as Harry well. Harry Mancini. Yeah, I mean, yeah for sure. On, let's give the man his props. But yeah. But that was really M-O-R. That was that era. And We used um, to call it M-O-M. Because <laughs> <laughs> my mom did like Andy Williams. And so, so John Fogarty did admit that... Their CCR is on the show just to draw in ratings for the younger crowd. They're kind of like pasted on at the end of the show um, just to get some younger audience uh, to, to watch the Andy Williams show. Yeah. Well, mm. I mean, I guess all those shows like Perry Como and, uh, and Ed Sullivan, for that matter, would That's have right. you know, pandered to some extent. Yes. Um, so this interview was right in the heart of the Nixon era. And Fogarty, like many artists at the time, was quite politically engaged, as you can hear if you listen closely to one of the band's biggest hits, Fortunate Son. And, it's, you know, that song I could have written yesterday, I'll tell you. And he's, you know, your favorite Richard is living up to his script, too. He's perfect. I mean, he's so obnoxious, he's perfect. But, uh, yeah, I wrote that. When did it come out? The end of 69. But, uh whew. Uh, he just keeps going on, you know, the line about uh, when they play Hail to the Chief, they point the cannon at you. You know, it's about all in red, white, and blue fools that do. they just so, I mean, they think they got, uh, you know, the market cornered on patriotism and that the rest of us are, I don't know, I don't know. All I know is Richard just has the last, you know, this whole, filled me with more shame than I've ever felt about someone I don't know personally. He just... Oh, man. He's made me feel more shame than I've ever felt about someone I don't know. Those are powerful words from John Fogarty talking about Richard Nixon. Tricky dick. Yes. Yeah. Well, that was a very contentious time, you know, and there was a lot for young people to rail against, particularly Vietnam, p- particularly the draft. Well, you know, May these young- 4th, 1970, Kent State. That's right. You know, to so say the least. It's such a hotbed, and it is interesting that, you know, all these years later, we're back in another hotbed of controversy and politics and young people becoming engaged. But boy, oh boy, they were really in it there. And so many of those protest songs got on the radio, whereas right now there might be a lot of protest songs, but I don't believe they're appearing at all on Top 40 radio. There's that's a big a, difference. That's a really, really good point. And, but maybe who's to blame? It's not the creators. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the gatekeepers that are preventing that music from being heard. Yes, I think you may be right there. At the time, as you'll recall, there were a lot of sort of winking references to drug use in songs and, and just as much scrutiny on lyrics that had nothing to do with those recreational substances. Here's Fogarty on that issue and how it applies to one of his songs. Oh, yeah, he's talking about looking out my back door. Yeah, that's still one of my favorite songs uh, that I've done. Um, that, you know, another fantasy. Uh, I used to have this book when I was little about... Well, two books. One was called the It Happened One Day on Mulberry Street or something like that. And all these things came by, you know. I think it was a Dr. Zeus book, I'm not sure. But it was those kind of cats. And all, you know, just how he did things. Just off the wall stuff came down Mulberry Street, you know. And I think the tambourines and the elephants were there, anyhow. 
but with that imagery, you know, a spoon with wings flying around. And no, folks, I didn't mean drugs or nothing else. Just a flying spoon. And grass meant that stuff that grows out inside in your front <laughs> yard. There. Whew. Well, the whole idea of the song was just that, you know, just that, that, that meaning really fantasy, not just human fantasy, but just anything possible kind of fantasy. You know, that was the idea of that song. <laughs> so people were reading drugs into that song, and he was reading Dr. Seuss. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I guess people were searching, and maybe there's some truth to both sides of that story, I wonder. Well, there were layers to his work. I mean, some of his writing was allegorical. Oh, it can just be there. My idea of, you know, rain was obviously a symbol all the time for me, that's all. And, uh, in fact, who'll stop the rain, you know, is, it sounds a little better than to say who'll stop the horse you know. <laughs> but that's what I was talking about. Uh, and have you ever seen the rain was vice versa, really. It was, uh... It was good. It was nice, you know, uh, fabled, rather, rather rare, and probably not seen in this lifetime, as they say. So, it was, you know, rain just was a, a, the best way to say it for me. Fogarty's had an incredible solo career too, with, with at times very long breaks between records. I guess the peak came with uh, the '85 release, Center Field. Now, I saw him at the House of Blues on Sunset Boulevard in May of '97. He was the first major artist I've ever seen who started early. Because <laughs> I got there on time, and he was already partway through his show. I'm like, wow. what? Wow. By the way, it was an incredible show. Yes. The new album was called Blue Moon Swamp. Remember that one? Yes. Yeah, and he won a Grammy in 98 for Best Rock Album for that. And I have a little, little tiny John Fogarty story for you. Okay. Okay, I was talking to a drummer who played on one of Fogarty's uh, solo records. Okay. And the session had gone really, really well. And they came back the next day, and John came into the uh, drum booth to, to chat with the drummer, and he looked down at his feet, and he said, well, those aren't the shoes you had on yesterday. The drummer said, no. And John said, oh, well, those shoes have the sound I want. <laughs> and he sent him home, and he lived an hour and a half away. Oh, that is crazy. Yeah, and he came back with the shoes. That's funny. With you the know, sound. John Fogarty issued his uh, biography a couple of years ago. And, you know, one of the things that you commented, Christopher, when you heard these clips is how lucid and how straightforward and how good these clips were, mm -hmm. right? I love them as well because I read his biography and it, he was not kind to the guys in the band. And I know why. I know that the publishing and the money and, they, and, all, and all that. But boy, oh boy, he spent so many pages cutting up their musicianship, their ability, their devotion to the band, that I had to stop reading. I actually, I've never mm, put down an, wow. a, an autobiography, especially by a really famous musician. I stopped reading Fortunate Son by John Fogarty because it was so uncharitable. It was so mean. Like, seriously, John, what you say on page 50, you don't have to repeat on pages 60, <laughs> 75, and 110. We get the point. These guys weren't great musicians, and you had to go back there and re-record some of their parts. But it was uh, like, let it go. He, he needed an editor on that book, and I never got to the end. Or a therapist. Yes, or a therapist. Um, so wasn't the main point of contention, and correct me here, the, the fact that the other guys went out using the Credence name without John Fogarty? Yes, and I, I do think, but I also think that they, the, the other guys 
teamed up, ganged up on him, even though he was clearly the songwriter and the musician in the band. And there were times when he just brought in other people to, to mm. record the parts, and they were really upset with him. And then they said, he would say, look, guys, I, I want it played this way. I know what I want here. So let me just go ahead and either play the parts myself or get other people to do it. And if you don't agree, we'll go back to the original version. And they always agreed with him that oh. his version and the new version was better. But there was such animosity. And, you know, animosity between brothers can be heartbreaking. And those two, I don't believe uh, John and Tom ever made up. I think there was a sort of reconciliation okay. when Tom was very ill. Oh, okay. But, well, uh, I hope so. I didn't yeah, get to those that are part tragic of stories. I didn't get to that part of the book because I stopped reading. And I, I don't want to read that stuff either. But yeah, yeah. Anyway, so there you go. Well, that's you know that's great stuff from John Fogerty. I do still respect his place in in rock and roll. And Fortunate Son and Who Will uh, Have You Ever Seen the Rain and Who Will Stop the Rain. Great anti-war songs. Just phenomenal and so powerful. Okay, time now for the Wisdom of Dave with David Lee Roth, who, of course, is not known as the guitarist from Van Halen, but listen to him talk about the type of guitar he plays. The kind of guitar that I play is very different than rock or rock and roll, heavy metal, any kind of rock. What I play is flat picking. It's country type stuff. It's bluegrass, you know, it's that old Doc Watson, uh, John Fahey type of stuff, you know. And, uh, it's awfully difficult when you when you bludgeon somebody's ears and sensibilities with this kind of power music and then all of a sudden you turn it all off and try and go very sweet and sensitive or play something sensitive to them. People physically cannot hear it. The inner fluid in your eardrum is all jumbled up doing the Watusi stepping right and left. You got break dancers in your pants, you know. <laughs> and I'm gonna sing a love song to you. Forget it. You won't even want to hear it. You know, much less be able to hear it. Ah, yes, we have been uplifted. <laughs> <laughs> Our producer is Adam Karsh. Adam, thank you very much. As always, Tom, this is most enjoyable. Let's continue having fun on Famous Lost Words. Bye. Bye.